everyone, and welcome to the Legal Trends by Hannes Nelman podcast. In this first series, we discuss international litigation trends with prominent lawyers from around the world and apply our Nordic perspective to them. What are the current litigation trends in the world? Will they reach the Nordics anytime soon, or are they already here? My name is Anna-Maria Tamminen. I'm a partner in the dispute resolution team at Hannes Nelman. And I am Helen Lehto, managing associate in the dispute resolution team at Hannes Nelman. In this episode, we discuss current trends in competition litigation with Fouad Hussainian, who's a European counsel in the Brussels office at Sullivan and Cromwell. He has 15 years of competition law experience leading clients through global merger and antitrust investigations. Fouad is a Swedish lawyer by training, but also holds an LLM from the College of Europe, and he has clerked for the Swedish judge Nils Wall at the ECJ before his career in private practice. Welcome to our podcast, Fouad. Thank you. Fuad will be joined today by one of our colleagues, Mikko Huimala, who is a partner in the competition law practice at Hannes Nellman. Mikko will comment upon similar trends through what he sees in his practice here in the Nordics. Hello, Mikko, and welcome. Good to be here. Without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Well, as our at least our guests know, uh, the EU merger control regime recently turned 30. While the Commission's enforcement approach has gone through a few policy developments during the last three decades, notably with recent expansion of its jurisdiction, how would you, Fouad, summarize the EU court's approach to merger litigation during these last three decades? Well, I think I would say that you have to see the court, and in particular the court's merger control litigation case law, as communicating vessels with the European Commission's practice. Um, so in the beginning, when the merger enforcement rules were being applied by the European Commission, what the court did and the cases brought to it mainly was about standing, admissibility, some jurisdictional issues. Um, so kind of very interesting for the lawyers and maybe less interesting for the business community. But as the merger control regime got more developed and established um, at the European Commission level, and actually has become you know, one of the main exporting features of Europe. And many, many jurisdictions afterwards have implemented merger control regimes and have kind of opted to more or less copy the European Union's approach and system rather than um, that of, of the US. And also the court had to do some more interesting work. And you can see that in phases or stages in the sense that um, after having left the preliminary phase of just looking at admissibility and standing, uh, we got quite interesting cases in the early 2000, um, which is about the quality of evidence and had a lot of disciplining effect on the European Commission, which led the European Commission to kind of reinvent its approach and, and make it much more professional. Um, we have also later on had phases where the court is looking quite closely on the procedural rights of the parties, um, because obviously within the system of European Commission, they are both the investigator, the accuser, and sort of a judge, because they will decide whether a merger happens or not. The EU courts then have to put a lot of emphasis that the party's right of defense is guaranteed already at the administrative level. So that's how the court's case law have kind of evolved. And What's important maybe to bear in mind is that, you know, the EU merger control has been a success by all metrics, although there have been criticisms, it's globally been a, a success. And the appeals 
are not so many. So out of maybe 8,000 decisions or so, less than 8,000 decisions over the last 30 years, I think you can see around 50 cases that have been brought to the court. And not all of them have been prohibition decisions. And that is also a particular feature in Europe that also competitors or customers unhappy with a particular merger can appeal an approval decision. So the court has had the opportunity and the privilege to look at merger decisions from both angles, both to verify whether the commission has been harsh enough or maybe it's been too stringent. So that's where we are today. But we have some interesting times ahead of us, which we might talk about a little bit later. So what would you say, Fuad, is the current trend in the EU courts with respect to merger litigation? I think what's happening today, it's that, first of all, there are much more appeals than it used to be. So up until now, we have had around 50 appeals. But I think we can see over the last years that the court is getting much more cases about mergers. And that's because the European Commission has, again, started to be more intrusive in its investigations. Um, but parties are also now challenging different type of decisions. So the current trend is that there's an increasing appetite for litigating. Um, and we can discuss the reasons for that in a bit. And there will be more also spaces for litigation because the European Commission has recently made a U-turn and decided to increase its jurisdictional and you know, invite uh, national competition authorities to refer um, cases more to it, cases that do not meet any other thresholds. So there will be more litigation because parties who have not expected to be subject to merger control review will suddenly face European Commission's investigations. And if a commission decides to call in a merger, it's probably because it's very interested and there's a highly likelihood that it will intervene and request commitments or even prohibit it. So we will see more litigation also on substance. So you're seeing a lot more merger control and parties who would not expect to find themselves in such a proceeding um, may end up there. After all, Mikko is seeing a similar trend here in the Nordics when you deal with the national authorities and so forth. Uh, so to a degree, um, I have to say there are also some kind of fundamental differences in play as well. So traditionally in Finland and Sweden, they changed the system, but let's say Finland still currently, um, the first decision maker ultimately in prohibiting a merger is, is the market court. So all cases are brought by kind of uh, necessity into merger litigation. Uh, should there be a prohibition proposal or a prohibition decision at the end of the day, whereas with the commission, you will uh, have the first instance being the commission itself uh, deciding, and then it's kind of uh, up to the parties whether they want to take it in litigation. And I think the starting point there is, is a bit different. In the Nordics and in Finland, of course, the amount of cases brought before the court is, is much smaller. We've had a handful in the history since 98 of, of merger control being brought to the court. But now in the, in the last two years, we've seen two cases. So as a trend, it might be something kind of signaling a more pickup of cases that will see more litigation going forward. I, I think then kind of as a measure of checks and balances, I think it's a bit of a different setup because kind of the case still has not yet been decided when it comes to court. So it's a kind of a more uh, fluid transition from uh, the investigatory phase to the decision making phase in, in the court. So perhaps it gives a bit of a different flavor than what you have with the commission decisions being challenged in the EU courts. If we look at the different aspects of uh, merger control, uh, one reoccurring criticism towards the EU merger regime has been timing. 
And leaving aside the increasingly lengthy review period at the Commission, how has the court dealt with the timing issue and how do the parties deal with this in their strategies when considering litigation fraud? That's a very good question. I mean, as, as we discussed initially, you know, court and the Commission is in a way in communicating vessels. And the thread throughout the court's case law uh, whether it has been for merger control or other provisions of EU law or antitrust rules, has been the overarching threat has been to safeguard the legitimacy of the EU, but also legitimacy of, for instance, the EU merger control. And, and timing is a very important aspect of that. When the court in the Air Schneider and Tata Laval cases struck down on the substantive analysis of the European Commission, it was actually to the benefit for the Commission in the long term because by making the analysis more sane, the legitimacy and the credibility of the EU merger control increased both within the EU and within the business as well as globally. And now the timing aspect you're bringing up, that's of course something that will eat into that legitimacy and, and credibility if you first can't get a, a merger review process done by the European Commission within a reasonable time. Um, but secondly, if you're unhappy with that, in particular if you're a merging party, if you don't have a reasonable time frame within which you can also get your case looked at by an independent judge. So this became a tangible problem already years ago, and the court tried to address it by actually reforming its procedure rules and adopting 10-15 years ago a so-called expedited procedure, where which was addressing merger appeals in particular, and some of these uh, cases back in early 2000 were dealt under the expedited procedure where they would be fast-tracked and you know have less maybe written briefs and also get the priority in order for the court to issue a judgment maybe within a year. Now, unfortunately, that has not been really successful because at the same time as the expedited procedure was adapted and implemented by the general court at the time, the European Commission as a reaction to having been criticized for its superficial analysis, stepped up its game and brought in much more econometrics and economic analysis into its decision. Which, of course, if you take these cases to court, um, to lawyers, it becomes a little bit more difficult to deal with these highly technical issues in a rapid matter. So, manner. So the expedited procedure, surprisingly, has not been actually used so much in merger cases. Uh, it has been requested, but also rejected. And the commission here, unfortunately, is not always in favor and mostly objects to an expedited procedure. So if you take the UPS TNT example, uh, which is a quite illustrative example, and I, I happen to be lucky enough to work with that case, um, it was a bid for TNT. Uh, the Commission blocked the deal. UPS appealed and explained to the court and the Commission that there was a risk that the target would no longer be available and there would be a competing bid and ask for an expedited procedure. That was rejected. UPS won the case on the merits four years later, but in the meantime, the competitor of the UPS FedEx uh, bid and acquired TNT. So timing is an issue, as you're saying. I think the court has tried to address this with the expedited procedure it didn't work and now the court has of course undergone a, general court has undergone a structural reform by doubling the number of judges in view of reducing the review period 
in particular for competition cases, but it remains to be seen if that is going to be successful. So that is an open point in, in terms of maintaining the legitimacy of the judicial review and ultimately of the EU merger control. Um, when a case is brought to the court, it has to be handled faster than now. Work in progress it is. So what would you say are the key influences between EU and national merger litigation in the recent years? Fouad, would you like to go first? That's a little bit a tricky question, but interesting one. So I think and we can hear from Mika on that, for instance, the timing issue. I think many jurisdictions and many practitioners in national jurisdictions do not want to have that kind of lengthy time frame that everybody faces at the EU level and at, at Luxembourg when you go to the court. So I don't know, Mick, if you want to address the timing issue and the flip side of, of that when it comes to right of defense before we move on to, to other influences between EU and national merger regimes. Sure, so happy to, because I think we, in Finland we have, a, let's say, an extremely expedited procedure in merger litigation under law. So basically the market court upon proposal by the uh, authority needs to decide in three months whether to approve conditionally or then block the proposed transaction. So, of course, kind of if by comparing to the one-year expedited procedure in the EU, this cuts it uh, into a small fraction of that. And uh, as you mentioned, also kind of cases are becoming heavy on economic analysis, which are kind of very fact-intensive and also require quite a bit of understanding and uh, familiarizing by the judges. It, of course, kind of uh, puts quite a bit of pressure in, in the process to manage it in a manner where kind of the rights of defenses are also upheld at the same time. So I think kind of the Finnish system is more or less an, an opposite in terms of timing to the EU system. So cases will be decided very quickly. But then kind of, of course, the other items then emerge that need attention. And Miko, from that perspective, I mean, having been through the, this type of process, I think we agree that it demands a lot of work when it's on, but then there's the potential appeal, right? So if you take that into the overall picture, would you say that the same holds true all throughout the process? So yes, so the market court decision can be appealed to the Supreme Administrative Court and there you will not have any limitations in time for, for the Supreme Administrative Court decide. So of course there you can then kind of have the opportunity to present the case in more detail. But then I guess kind of, again, it comes to the question of what will be the expected time frame of getting a decision in that proceeding and is there too much uncertainty for an MTA transaction to, to withhold and a kind of appeals process there. So therefore we really haven't seen appeals to the Supreme Administrative Court on these matters. So, yeah, there's a very quick and a very potentially very lengthy proceeding in, in play, which is an interesting dynamic, of course. So any other key influences, Fouad, which you would like to address between the EU and national merger litigation? Yeah, I mean, I have no empirical evidence for this, but my just feeling from being involved in cases and, uh, you know, with the time experience, I think there are influences in the sense of, the stages in which the agencies are in and then how the courts react to that or how the parties bring cases to the courts. So one of the trends that I didn't really address in the beginning, because it's more of a procedural one, is that the European Commission a few years ago started to also pursue companies for gun jumping um, or for having provided incorrect information. 
So that's not, of course, merger litigation as such, because it's not about the merits of the decision and as, as we would understand merger litigation, but that's the European Commission being active in then sanctioning companies that are not respecting the letter and the idea of the merger regulation by providing complete information or by not respecting the standstill period. And that, whether uh, completely clear, whether that has you know, influenced the national agencies or whether the national agencies influence the European Commission, I think that can be debated, but we can see that that happened and there's a similar trend um, in other countries such as France, Spain, I think even in the Nordics, Denmark had this famous case that they also sent to the, to the European Court of Justice for a premier ruling. And so that's an example. I think another one that we will see and might not have seen yet is driven by outside economic forces. So most of the trends we talked about now, it's more the root of that is internal, is how the European Commission, for instance, or how national agencies, how quick they have been in rendering decisions or how where they have been in looking at economic evidence, and then the courts have reacted to that, so kind of internal routes to certain litigation trends. But what I think we will face now is that with the digitalization of the economy and the fact that uh, you don't really capture the important deals anymore by just having turnover-related uh, jurisdictional thresholds, has forced the European Commission to follow some national agencies that already had either lower turnover thresholds or some kind of market share value thresholds, uh, market share thresholds or mm, transaction size thresholds. So litigation with respect to those aspects are already ongoing at the national level. And that will of course influence the litigation that we will see now at the EU level because the commission has also changed approach although through guidance letters rather than legislation. I think that's a space to watch. Is this something you're seeing as well, Mikko? So overall, I think on, on national level, probably we will see more cases uh, and, and perhaps just very quickly referencing, I think it was yesterday that five major national enforcers came out with a joint statement uh, saying that the merger control on national level needs to get more tough and that, for example, the efficiency defense in mergers shouldn't play that much of a role and we shouldn't expect mergers by default to be efficiency enhancing all which is quite a paradigm shift in terms of kind of uh, the more customary theory that mergers are actually by definition efficiency enhancing and you have problems only in a more handful of cases so kind of combining that with Ford's notion that more mergers will probably be reviewed because the turnover thresholds are kind of being revisited or at least tweaked through Article 22 uh, on the EU level and, and on national level, there's pressure to change them as well. So I think we'll see more mergers needing to be filed. And uh, if the themes that are in, in yesterday's statement from five major national enforcers that uh, kind of gets traction that, that we should somehow take mergers as, as not being by default efficiency enhancing, I think uh, we'll see a proliferation of litigation when these two kind of factors are combined in, in the next years. Mika, you alluded to econometric evidence already earlier on, and, and uh, Ford also made reference to the role that it plays in, in merger control cases, and not least on the point of, of demonstrating efficiencies. In terms of the, the econometric and economic evidence in these cases, what trends can you spot, or would you say that that exists that you've seen as of late? If, if you go first, Mika. Uh, sure. So I, I think kind of their role has grown on national level 
quite a bit. Of course, it's been some five years, I think, as I trained it at the, uh, the role of kind of economic consultancies, for both for the parties, but also then for the authorities have increased. So the authority has, has now quite a wide array of, of economists in all of the Nordic jurisdictions. And that means also that the authorities are, of course, producing quite a bit of, of economic evidence. And for example, looking at some of the recent landmark decisions in Finland, we see the authority using in parallel several different kinds of economic analysis as kind of supportive of their view in the merger, which means that the parties, of course, need to address those as well. And that leads to a lot of economics work. And also then if brought to litigation, of course, quite a, a large amount of analysis being then kind of presented to the court. So I think uh, different types of evidence are being brought than, let's say, 10 years ago in support with the aim to prohibit the merger. And I think here I have to add from a litigator's perspective, having worked together with you on on one of these, is, is that the role of how that evidence is being dealt with within those proceedings is very much uncharted territory. And perhaps there's room for debate for lawyers and in, in how that evidence is handled and how it's presented to the court, and especially whether a party has a right to challenge that evidence and how that is done, I think. There's room for debate there. But how do Mikko's thoughts reflect upon what you see, FUD, in your practice on the European level? Slightly differently. So I think it's good what we're hearing that the agency itself, as Mikko is explaining, has on its own initiative take and undertakes economic analysis, etc. I think what we've seen here, of course, it depends on the chief economist, the person of the chief economist that changes it at the European Commission level every few years. But they, of course, and the way things are developed here is that they kind of react and then engage with the parties who most of the time take the initiative of submitting economic reports in order to kind of rebut sort of assumption that uh, normally comes up when you have a concentrated market. So that's just about the initiative and how it goes about it. But of course, there are exceptional cases where the economists at the European Commission, and, and we can refer there to the uh, recent mergers such as Bayer Monsanto and Dow DuPont, where the chief economist team was driving the fear of harm by stressing very much the innovation competition space. Now, taking all of this to the court level, I think we have been surprised to see that the general court when it wants to, is very much capable of and interested in getting deep into econometrics and the models used and the differences between the models and you know how various variables can bias the outcome. That is visible to anyone who reads the UPSTNC judgment, but also the judgment that came after that in Hutchison. And I think that has not always been the experience. So if you compare those judgments to the Deutsche Bors judgment a few years earlier, where similar kind of claims were made by the applicants about flaws in the econometric analysis of the agency, you can see that there is more of an interest or has been shown at least more of interest in looking at these arguments than looking at the papers. So that's how I would summarize it in the sense that currently, depending, of course, also which bench you get when, when you are at the court, there is plenty of appetite for the court to look at the economic evidence. But I think it always comes down to the narrative that the companies can put forward 
in order to present the economic evidence. If you are too technical from the beginning, you probably have less chances of triggering the curiosity of the judges. But if you can point to a number of points throughout the process and in the decision that intuitively sounds alarming or sounds like the commission might not have gone correct about this, I think then the court also gets interested further and will look in more detail into the econometrics. That's, I think, the key takeaway for us from the last two, three years. Sounds like litigation 101. Tell a story. Indeed. <laughs> We are nearing the end of the podcast, and we have a few more lighthearted questions, which we tend to ask everybody towards the end. The first one being something we already touched upon, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What is the most interesting litigation development which you have either seen in the last few years or which you anticipate to see in the future? Mick, could you want to go first? Yeah, so um, I think uh, overall, let's say, in terms of what will be interesting, I think kind of uh, at least from the national level, it indeed will be to see how kind of uh, this all evolves. Will we see more litigation or kind of will be able to kind of find new ways to settle cases as more cases are being brought to the authorities on the authority level without kind of uh, a neat litigation? But I think uh, as an interesting development, at least from the Finnish perspective, managing the very short process time we have at market court and kind of seeing how all the bits and pieces fall together so that there's a due and fair process for all parties. So I think that's uh, something to look forward to. Sounds reasonable. What would you say, Fudd? I'm going to be non-conventional here and for a second step out of my comfort zone of competition law. I personally, from a personal perspective, I really find interesting what has going on and probably will continue in, in the privacy litigation. You know, there are some pioneers out there, um, young people with conviction, but also, of course, a lot of business interests that are on all fronts uh, litigating and having this battle about privacy to some extent that, uh, of course, have um, is intertwined with competition law. But as you all know, the European Commission has so far in its decision, whether it's merger and trust, tried to stay away explicitly from privacy considerations. So it's not so much an unfortunately antitrust litigation yet, but I always, as a private person, try to follow this aspect of litigation going around in the world and also in the EU. So I take a personal interest in that. Fouad, we've got good news for you. We've got an episode uh, covering that, so uh, <laughs> you can stay tuned. I'll um, stay tuned in. As a Nordic firm, we also ask all of our guests, what's the most interesting thing that you know about the Nordics? Uh, and Fouad, knowing the, that you've spent uh, your childhood in Sweden, what would be your answer here? Yeah, I find it very interesting that uh, we in the Nordics are blessed with debating very interesting questions, such as, is Santa Claus from Finland or Sweden, you know, a hot topic in the Nordics. <laughs> which which chocolate brand is the tastiest? Is it Marabou Fazer? You know, I we know. You know. <laughs> um, but, we know what the answer is, yeah. but you would perhaps disagree. <laughs> yeah, probably not. And um, and then, of course, the most important question, which country has the best hockey team? Is it Sweden or Finland? Yeah, common but uh, separating factors. Um, Mikko, what would you say? 
Yeah, well, I, I guess kind of following from Fouad's kind of questions and debate topics, I think that brings us to, of course, kind of uh, the ranking of Nordics in kind of happiness scale. And I, I think kind of we've throughout years ranked ranked top one position kind of globally. So I, I think that's a good takeaway of Nordics, whether it kind of feeds from these kind of good debates we're having or then kind of as a, also, we I think we rank five out of six in terms of countries that consume most coffee. So where's the kind of correlation or causation? I don't know, <laughs> but... Uh, But we we need some economic evidence on that for sure. Feel free to present it. So, um, what would be the funniest moment you've had in a hearing or in a meeting? Fuad, would you want to go first? Yeah, I think all of us have either witnessed or heard of a story when the judge falls asleep. But I actually witnessed a hearing where one of the counsels, one of the lawyers, fell asleep. <laughs> to to great joy, to the great joy of. For us on the other side, but less less fun for the client, his client. <laughs> well, that's certainly not anything you would want to happen. That's an interesting deduction on the bill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Deducting three hours because counsel was asleep. Um, Miko, what would you say to this? I, I don't know. I think always, for example, when we talk about market definition, those meetings are, are just great fun for competition lawyers. But I, I think kind of a more topical theme is, I think, last year when kind of the corona time started, I think beginning most meetings with an unknown kind of platform and, and people scrambling to get their kind of video and audio workout. I, I think there was so so many hilarious moments there. So so that's one positive impact of kind of the distance working side. So so it's been great fun. Did you ever end up using a cat filter by mistake? <laughs> no, I haven't <laughs> found that it would be a really nice, nice feature to have. And a year later, we're still scrambling. <laughs> So, thank you guys so much for joining us. It's been a great pleasure having you. Thank you very much, Fod, for for being on this call. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Miko. And thank you, Miko, for coming as well. Thanks so much. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. We will be back soon with more. In the meantime, we would love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this episode or wish to continue the discussion online, please follow our LinkedIn profile or other Hannes Delman social media channels. 